this list. If you have your Bibles this morning, we are going to Acts chapter 6. We're going to start to read at verse 1. We finished our series on being a true witness last Sunday morning and Sunday night. I taught that same lesson in both services because of the restrictions that we were under. I'm going to preach something this morning that could easily be considered a part of that series, but we'll keep it in its own little box. But uh, I, I do feel strongly, and when I say feel, I don't mean in my emotions, I believe it's in the Spirit of the Lord, that this is an important time for us as a church, particularly in view of where God wants to take us and how He wants to use us for His glory. Amen. I want somebody to point to somebody and say, God wants to use you. And then I want them to point to themselves and say, He wants to use me as well. Amen. I know from conversations with people and also what I'm feeling in the Holy Ghost that God is moving in the hearts of people to have a desire to do something for Jesus. And if the Lord's moving on you in that way, don't shrug that off. There is no greater privilege than to serve in the kingdom of God in some capacity. Acts chapter 6, and we're starting at verse 1. Scripture says, And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring. We would understand that as a complaining of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. For we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. With the help of the Lord this morning, I want to preach that you can make a difference. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're thankful for your presence that is here. We're thankful for your word that does not change. Lord, the promises that are contained in it are just as relevant today as they were when it was penned. And we, I ask you this morning for your anointing upon me as I bring your word. I ask you, Lord, for your anointing upon your people to receive your word. Lord God, that faith, God, would be, Lord, dispersed in this place, that we would be challenged by the word of God, not overwhelmed, but challenged to have the faith to trust you, God, to be what you would have us to be, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. That's all right. <laughs> Teach them young. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 of the book of Acts occupy a very important space in the narrative of the early church and the story of the very young church. These chapters record a period that sees the church, it's almost as if the church is swinging through a transition. There's a change that's taking place and the church is in the 
throws, you might say, are in the motion of becoming so much more than just a small crazy group of Jews that followed a carpenter's son from Nazareth. If you take it back to the beginning of the book, because chapter 1 of the book of Acts records the ascension of Jesus or Jesus going back into heaven, it is almost the last chapter of all four Gospels. It is the chapter that connects Matthew, Mark, Luke and John with the book of Acts. And if you read the last chapter of Luke's Gospel, you'll see that he is the only Gospel writer that mentions Jesus' ascension. And as the writer of the book of Acts, he, he re- repeats that, that significance of that event in what is about to take place in the church. And even though Scripture tells us that more than 500 people at one time, on one day, saw the resurrected Savior, they saw Jesus risen from the dead, chapter 2 of the book of Acts lets us know that we find 120 faithful people waiting in an upper room for the promise of the Holy Ghost. And when miraculously, supernaturally, never underestimate the miracle of receiving the Holy Ghost, when all 120 souls in a few moments' time are filled with the Holy Ghost, that excitement spills out onto the streets and it immediately drew a crowd who were amazed at what they saw and heard. And Peter got up and preached the gospel message of the new birth for the very first time that you must be born again, that you needed to repent of your sins, you needed to be baptized in Jesus' name for the forgiveness or the remission of those sins. And we're we're going to baptize Adam in Jesus' name at the end of this service just like they did in the book of Acts. And he preached about the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Scripture says that all those that gladly received the Word were baptized in Jesus' name. And somewhere about 3,000 souls were added to that infant church that day. In chapters 3 and 4, Peter and John go to the temple to pray, coming across the lame man that they may have seen many, many times before they offer him the only thing that they had to give. They didn't have any money. That's what he was looking for. It seems they didn't have any. But they said, what we do have, we'll give to you. And they said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And that man is healed miraculously. And again, there is excitement. There is wonder that is generated by the miracle that's just taken place because everybody's seen this crippled man sit outside the temple. Amen. And this excitement and this wonder generated yet another opportunity for Peter to preach about Jesus. And by the end of the fourth chapter, there's another 5,000 people that have been added to the church. And we read at the end of, I think it's the end of chapter 4, that many of them just moved on by the Spirit of God. Nobody instructed them to do so, but just as the Spirit of God moved on them, they were selling property, selling land, selling houses, bringing the money from those sales and laying it at the apostles' feet to provide for whatever the needs there were amongst the believers in that church that was growing so quickly. And then we get to chapter 5, and in chapter 5 of the book of Acts, there's a bump in the road when Ananias and his wife Sapphira pretend to do something with the right motive, but were only really attempting to draw attention to themselves. And after God judges them in a fashion that we might think is harsh, but God knew exactly what he was doing, after that judgment, many signs and wonders, the Bible says, were done at the hands of the apostles, and multitudes, the Scripture says, of men and women were added to the church. 
I don't know what is the metric measure of a multitude, but it seems that it was probably more than the previous numbers that had been given because they'd either given up trying to count or there were just too many people to try to count. They just said lots. How many people were converted? A multitude. Lots. Amen. And then the apostles were dragged in before the religious rulers because of the chaos they were causing in Jerusalem, or more accurately, the chaos that Jesus was causing in Jerusalem. They were questioned about what they were doing, and they were thrown into prison. And an angel was sent from the Lord, opened the prison doors, let them out during the night. And the next morning, the soldiers were sent to bring them, and the door was locked, but they were gone. They came back to the leaders and said, "Ah, we went to the prison. The door was still locked, but they were gone. And then somebody came in and said, the men that you imprisoned, they're out preaching in the city, in the streets again. They brought them in before the rulers, and the rulers were furious with them. In fact, the Bible says they were looking for a way, trying to work out a way that they could justify killing them. Part of that was because of the conviction that they were feeling in their hearts. But amongst those religious rulers, there's a wise man by the name of Gamaliel. Bible says that he stood up and he said, if these men are of God, he said, it's pointless to fight against them. He said, but if they're not of God, he said, it'll just fizzle out. It'll come to nothing. And he went, he listed a few different people. He said, you remember this man that rose up and then this man that led a rebellion? He said, you know, where are they now? They they came to nothing. So he said, "If if it's not of God, it'll just fizzle out. He said, but if it is of God, you won't be able to fight it. Now, That brings us to our text in chapter 6 and we do not know exactly how long or how much time has passed between Pentecost and Acts chapter 6. Some commentators suggest it all took place in the same calendar year. Others say it was two years, three years or even as, as much as four years. We don't really know. But regardless of the exact time frame, in a relatively short space of time, the early church has grown from 120 souls in a prayer meeting to somewhere possibly between ten and 20,000 people, if not more than that, in a very short period of time. It was an incredible revival. The church began with an explosion in the upper room. But then as we read at the beginning of chapter 6, we hit a problem. We hit a problem. There's a problem in the church. Who knew that in the midst of a Holy Ghost revival you could have problems? That's humanity. Now, remember that in Acts chapter 4, there were people that sold property, brought the money. Those funds were being used to meet the needs of the believers in the early church. And probably, I think it's accurate to say that the most vulnerable group amongst the believers was the widows. Ladies whose husbands had passed away, who didn't have the means to take care of themselves, and they depended, there's no social security back then, So they depended on either extended family or if they didn't have extended family, they depended upon the kindness of others to survive. And somewhere in this this taking care of the the needy, the Greek widows, it tells us that refers them as Grecians and whether or not they were actually Greeks or whether they were Jews who had family members that lived in different Greek provinces is not completely clear. But regardless, they've complained because they felt like they were being overlooked they weren't being cared for and their their daily needs weren't being ministered unto and we we don't really know what was going on it it may have been because of the size of the task all of a sudden his church has grown to thousands and thousands of people 
It's all hands on deck trying to take care of everybody. It may have also been, if we're honest, the fact that the Jews were still adjusting to the fact that non-Jews or Hellenistic Jews could actually be a part of the kingdom of God. They had a whole lot of tradition they had to overcome. They're still working, so maybe there was preferential treatment. It should not surprise us that there were imperfections in the early church any more than it should surprise us that there are imperfections in the church today. But the fuss that was going on, the complaining reached a significant enough level that it got the attention of the apostles who decided they had to address the issue. Now, I don't know if you realize it or not, but when you read this chapter and this particular situation, in the context of what is going on in the early church, pre and post chapter 6, this situation and how they respond to it is a tipping point. It's a, it's a point in the story of the church where it's going to affect what will happen next or what won't happen next. Peter refers to the problem as business that needs to be taken care of. The word that business is translated from means it's a need. In other words, it had to be handled. They couldn't just say, oh, go away, stop complaining, everything will be fine. It was something that they had to address. And then Peter and the other apostles recognized that it would be a mistake for them to become focused on fixing that problem themselves and taking their eyes off the ball is probably the expression we would use, taking their focus off what God had called them to do, which was to preach the gospel. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say that if the apostles had turned their energy towards taking care of the widow's needs themselves, that the revival or the harvest that was taking place may have died right then and there. Because that was not what God wanted them to do. And so in wisdom and under the the leading of the Holy Ghost, they said to the crowd that was there, they said, find seven men among you that we can get to take care of this situation. Why seven? Why seven men? Some have suggested there were seven days. Maybe they got one day of the week each to take care of. I'd have been volunteering for the Sabbath. That would have been the easiest day because you weren't allowed to do any work. But seven is also considered to be God's number or the number of completion. God indicating that there's something that was done well. It was done completely. These seven men that were to be chosen had to have certain qualities. And we're going to come back to that in a little while. It wasn't that the apostles were treating it as if it wasn't important or or, or if it didn't matter. It obviously was significant because when they brought these seven men to the apostles, the scripture says they laid hands on them and prayed for them before they sent them to take care of this situation. So it wasn't just like, yeah, take care of it, we're not interested. They recognized that it was important, but it was not supposed to distract them from what they were doing. And so what was the result? Seven young men are chosen to go and sort out a problem with taking care of the needs of widows. But the result was, according to the scripture, that the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Didn't just multiply, it multiplied greatly. Not only did the harvest of souls continue to happen, the ministry of the word of God increased. Or in other words, it became greater it became more effective, it was reaching further than it had before. Praise God for that. 
Amen. When we understand what we were supposed to be doing and we do it God's way, God will bless and honor that and anoint the things that we do. But there's more to this story. And some of you know some of this. Some of you may not know it as well as others. We do not know what became of all seven men after Acts chapter 6. Stephen and Philip, we hear a bit more about the two of them. But the other five, they get a mention here and that seems to be pretty much it. Church tradition has some suggestions about what happened to the other men, what they ended up doing, where they ended up going, but we don't really know for sure. But it doesn't make them any less important. I want to state that this morning. It simply means that they weren't in the recorded narrative that God wanted us to be aware of. We need to understand that just because somebody doesn't get as much ink in the Scripture, it doesn't reduce their significance in the sight of God. There were people in the New Testament serving God, working for God, living for God all across the world. We don't know their names. We don't know what their ministries were. We don't know who they led, who they reached, who they preached to, who they served, which widows they made sure were taken care of. But they're just as important as the ones that we do know about. It's important we understand that. Sometimes people say, well, if that person was important, we'd know more about them. How many of Adam and Eve's kids do you know the names of? How many do you think they actually had? Why don't we have the rest of the kids? Nowadays, that would be considered unfair treatment. But the others are not relevant to the story that God wants us to have. That's why Stephen and Philip... It's not that two of the seven turned out good and the other five were duds. That's not the, that's not the message of Acts chapter 6. The message is that they were all anointed, prayed for by the elders, and sent out to take care of this ministry. And Stephen along with the other six, begins to serve by taking care of the widows. What does that mean? He probably would have delivered food, maybe other necessities of life. But when you read it, it tells us that he would have also ministered to them spiritually. Because the Bible says that he did great wonders and miracles among the people. The details are not given to us, but it seems likely that as he was caring for their physical needs, he would pray for the sick. He would minister and he would encourage. He would share, share something with them to help them on their walk with God. Maybe there were people that needed deliverance. He, he saw miracles happen repeatedly as a part of his willingness to serve in what we would consider a pretty, pretty unattractive task. Amen. His ministry, the things that he was doing, was significant enough that it got the attention of certain religious groups that tried to discredit him. They even went as far as to organize false witnesses against him, people to come up with accusations that had no substance trying to tear him down. But the Bible says that they could not resist the wisdom and the anointing that he had when he spoke to them. And so in Acts chapter 7... Stephen is brought in before the authorities, and I would encourage you to read all these chapters together so you can see this flow yourselves. But in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is brought in before the religious rulers, and when he was challenged, he begins to remind them of their history as a nation and how historically, as a people, they rejected the prophets so many times. They did not listen to the word of God. They did not listen to the man of God. They would not take the counsel of God again and again and again. And in fact, they even would kill the prophets. And then Stephen brought it right back to the present tense and basically told them all, you guys are no different. 
to your fathers. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. This is a young man whose his business card says widow ministries. This is a young man speaking to the religious rulers of the day, and he said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have, you have been now the betrayers and murderers. You want to make sure you're in the Holy Ghost saying this stuff. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. He challenged them very strongly and they, they got so angry with him. The Bible says they were cut to their hearts. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. They, they were grinding their teeth. Such was their, their anger and their wrath. But Stephen is still under the anointing of the Holy Ghost and has a vision where he says, I see the heavens open and Jesus on the right hand of God. And that was too much for them. As, as he declares that, they couldn't take it anymore. And they ran upon him and they, they dragged him out of the city and they stoned him to death. And as he is dying, I don't even, I can't even imagine what it's like to be killed by people throwing rocks at you with anger, with a deliberate desire to inflict pain and to kill you. They weren't little pebbles. They were stones that were designed to destroy him. But even as he's dying, he asks God to be merciful to the people that are killing him. I'm not sure that's what I'd be praying. But he said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Don't hold this against them, Lord. And a young man's life is tragically cut short. A young man who, from where we look, had so much to offer, so much potential, could have gone on to do such great things for God. And in our natural understanding, and that's what the problem is so often, it's our natural understanding. But in our natural understanding, it was a waste of a life. It was brutally cut short. But we know from Paul's writings in Romans 8 and 28 that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. It's never been about our comfort. It's never been about our will. It's never been about our preferences. When you say, God, I want to serve you, he doesn't hand you forms that allows you to indicate what you would prefer. You know, this is what I'd like for breakfast. I'd like to live here, have this income, do this. It's about the purpose of God. What are we saying this morning? If you recall from Acts chapter 5, we mentioned a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a very highly regarded teacher. In the tradition of the Jews, he might have been referred to as a rabbi or a master who selected students who were dedicated to him. These, those that were the, considered the best teachers, they didn't just take anybody, but they, they would select the best students, those they thought had the most potential. And when you read the book of Acts across the whole book, we learn that Gamaliel had a brilliant young student whose name was Saul of Tarsus. This young man was zealous. He was passionate about the law of Moses. He was fiercely determined to protect it. In fact, in his own testimony, he described himself quite boldly as being a better Pharisee than all the others. He was saying, I had more passion, I had more knowledge, I had more zeal than all of you. 
And he was determined to make sure that the law was protected, that it was kept, that it was followed right down to the finer details. And while Gamaliel was wise enough as an older man to recognize that if the followers of Jesus were not of God, they would crumble and disappear, Saul of Tarsus was not so philosophical about it. He had such a passion that he wanted to destroy this infant church. He was trying to make sure that it was crushed and that it was quickly erased from society. So much so that he was actually a part of the mob that were involved in the execution of Stephen. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 58, speaking of Stephen, it says they cast him out of the city, stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes, it's talking about their coats, at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Why does Scripture bother to tell us who was holding the jackets of the people that killed Stephen? Why is that even remotely important? And we would say, who cares who was holding their jackets? What's the, what? It's there for a reason. And that reason is that even as he died, Stephen was making a difference. Even as he was taking his last breaths and experiencing pain that's hard for us to comprehend, Saul of Tarsus would leave that scene and never be the same again. Saul watched that took place. He stood there endorsing what was going on. How do we know that that impacted Saul? Because when we read the very next chapter in chapter Eight, I believe it was chapter 9, Saul, beginning of chapter 8 actually, Saul of Tarsus is fanatically persecuting the church. He's having men and women thrown into prison. And that persecution affects the church in Jerusalem. And it causes Philip, one of Stephen's fellow young men of the seven, Philip goes to Samaria to preach the gospel to that city that normally they would not have wanted to have anything to do with. But in doing so, Philip fulfills Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, which has been our theme for the last four or five weeks, that you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria. What took place caused Philip to step into the will of God. He probably thought it was about self-preservation, but it was actually stepping into the will of God. Philip was serving just like Stephen was, looking after widows, taking care of basic needs. But now God's using him to reach a city. Philip's making a difference. Saul of Tarsus is so passionate about destroying the church that he gets authority to go to Damascus. He gets authority to go to the capital of another country, to the capital of Syria, and to go after the believers that were there as well. But the whole time, and I'm I'm reading a little bit into this, but I think I'm on firm ground. The whole time that Paul... Saul rather is outwardly seeming just hateful of the church. God is reaching for his heart. God is reaching for his mind and he's troubling him. He's bothering him. He won't leave him alone. And Paul, Saul is having a hard time trying to shake the memory of a young man named Stephen that he watched die with peace and love on his face that should not have been there. And yet it was. And he cannot shake the memory of that young man. Because when we get to Acts chapter 9, Paul is on his way to Damascus. Acts 9, starting at verse 3, says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou 
me. And in a moment's time, Saul of Tarsus' life was turned upside down. And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. There's an expression some of us understand from verse 5 where the Lord said to Paul, It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. That expression is taken from the practice when they would use an ox to pull a cart or a plow, and it was a bit, maybe a bit sluggish and a little bit uncooperative. They would have a sharp stick or a piece of metal, and they would jab that ox in the back of the leg, whoever was driving the plow or, or on the cart would just give that ox a bit of a poke with something sharp just to, you know, stir it up and to get it to move on and increase its workload a little bit. And most of the time that probably worked, but every once in a while when the ox was a bit cranky, even animals have cranky days, when the ox was a bit cranky and the, the farmer, whoever it was, would poke that sharp stick into the back of its leg, the ox would kick back angrily in response to that pain. But in kicking back would actually cause the spike to go deeper into its leg and hurt more than it did before. And that's exactly what was going on with Saul of Tarsus. He's feeling the prick in his conscience. He's seen, I believe he was seeing Stephen's face in his dreams at night. And so he's trying to overcome that with zeal to persecute the church. But the harder he tries, the harder he kicks against the prick, the more God is tapping him in the heart, the more God is reaching into that man's heart and saying, what you're doing is wrong. And every person he throws into prison trying to get that thought out of his mind, Stephen's face is there. And he sees a young man dying with peace and love. That should not have been there, and yet it was. Paul is converted by his experience on the Damascus Road, goes into Damascus, meets a disciple there who goes to him, and the Lord says, I want you to go and pray for this man. And the man double-checks the message because he knows Saul of Tarsus' reputation. And he goes and prays for him. His sight is returned, and Saul of Tarsus becomes the Apostle Paul. So we know, many of us know all this, but he goes on to become the writer of most of the New Testament, to be a missionary, to be a church planter, to be an apostle of incredible significance in the kingdom of God. Just like Philip went to fulfill Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 in Samaria, Paul went to the uttermost part of the earth to do what God would have him to do. Amen. I don't think it's wrong, and you can correct me if you think I'm in error, but I don't think it's wrong to suggest that this does not happen in the Apostle Paul's life without a young man who's willing to serve in Jerusalem, who's willing to say, I'm happy to minister to the widows. I'm considerate and honored to have hands laid on me by my elders. I'll pray for them. I'll care for them. I'll take them food. I'll take care of the things they can't do by themselves anymore. I just want to serve God. But because he was willing... The Apostle Paul watched him die. And what happened to the Apostle Paul? It, it was such an impact on Paul. In fact, in Acts chapter 22 and verse 20, Paul is giving his testimony. He's telling them what happened in his life. And in verse 20 of 22, he said, When the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, he said, I was standing by and consenting under his death. 
and I kept the raiment. I was holding the coats of those that killed him. There was a lot of things Paul could have included in his testimony. There was a lot of things he could have said. But such was the impact that Stephen's sacrifice and the way he sacrificed had on him that it was very much a part of how Paul saw his conversion experience. I want to tell somebody this morning, you can make a difference. You can make a difference in this world, in the kingdom of God. Stephen had no idea as he was dying that the young Pharisee standing off to the side holding the coats would become the Apostle Paul. He had no idea that his ministry could have a ripple effect and impact Paul in such a way that he would become the man of God that he was. I'd like to think that when Paul died and he went to be with the Lord that he would have found Stephen and told him about the difference that his life had made. Told him about how his spirit while he was being executed had shaken Paul to the very core of his belief because everything in Paul's life before that was knowledge. It was law. It was legalism. But something that Stephen had, Paul did not have. Hallelujah. We need to remember this morning that God tells long stories. And you will not always know the difference that you have made. You may go into eternity thinking, well, I don't feel like I did much, but you do not know who was watching, who was listening, who was influenced, who was encouraged, who was guided, who was impacted in some way because you said, I'm willing to serve God like Stephen was. Stephen's ministry was a very, very short window of time. But the impact it had on the New Testament church is still being felt by us today as we open the epistles that Paul read and wrote to us under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. So getting back to chapter 6, and I'm not too far from being done this morning. What were the qualifications that were required of the seven young men in Acts chapter 6? Verse 3 says, Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Three things. An honest report, being full of the Holy Ghost, and wisdom. Most of us, if we're honest, there's just something about human nature. When we read a verse like that, we judge ourselves pretty harshly. We'd say, well, I don't think I have those things. I said to you this morning, do you feel like you've got an honest report and you're full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom? You'd probably say, working on it. (laughs) He's still working on me. And that would be a fair response and an accurate response. But if we're honest, some of us would read that and then instantly disqualify ourselves. Say, well, those young men, they were pretty good. They were some top shelf young men and they had what they were looking for and they were selected to do servant work, to minister to widows. But let's take a moment and just look at what it really means. You see, when you read Scripture, you've got to be careful that you don't read about the New Testament saints as being, you know, superheroes and how they did this for God, but us, no, we're not like them. They were exactly like we are. Exactly like we are. 
They were people that grew up in families and homes who had problems, who didn't have everything go their way, whose families had problems, who had struggles they went through, who had heartaches they went through, who had brokenness that needed to be healed. And yet, just like us, they were vessels filled with the Spirit of God that God anointed and that God used. Now, I know there are some standouts in the mix. We look at Paul and we think, wow. But... Every other person in the New Testament, the the people that were just the everyday saints. I don't use that to discredit that. Everyday saints are anointed vessels of God. Amen. An honest report at surface level is about reputation. It's about a demonstration of what we are to other people. But what I found really interesting in looking at this passage is that honest report is actually translated from one Greek word, martorio. And I've got those two words on a slide if you'd flick them up, Daniel. The second word on that slide is translated as honest report. And it comes from the first word, which is martyrs. And I was thinking, okay, we're weirding out here. We're getting into Greek, but we're not going to go much further than this. It's okay. Martyrs is a noun. Martyrio is a verb. Acts chapter 1, if I could have that next slide, please. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, which we have repeated excessively in the last five weeks says but you shall receive power after that the holy ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses that greek word is martyrs in acts chapter 6 and verse 3 honest report is martyrio so the two go together one is the demonstration of the other one is the action word of the descriptive word and so if you remember that we have been focusing on being a true witness When we describe somebody as having an honest report, what we're saying is that there is an active demonstration of the changes that God has made in us and continues to make in us. It is not saying that we are perfect, that we have arrived, that we tick all the boxes and we got A pluses for every exam. It is saying that we are a child of God, that he has transformed us, that he has called us out of darkness and into light, and he is working on us, and we are demonstrating that transformation. So if you are doing your very best to live for God like now, right now and walk with God, you have an honest report. It doesn't say a perfect report. It's an honest report. We are a demonstrated witness in the kingdom of God. Amen. Being full of the Holy Ghost. What do we think that means? Because if if I say to you, are you full of the Holy Ghost? Most of us would probably hesitate to respond. Because we have this idea that somehow that means we're at some supernatural, uncomparable level being filled with the Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul told us in Ephesians that we need to be filled with the Spirit. If he gave us the instruction, it means we can do it. It means we can do it. Now, I know we come to church sometimes, the Spirit of God moves, we come to the altar, we pray, the Spirit of God just is powerful, and we go out of here and we feel full of the Spirit. But that's an emotional response to a fantastic service. If you're full of the Spirit, it means that each day I'm walking with God. Each day I'm spending time with Him. Each day I'm in prayer. Each day I'm letting His Word speak to me. Each day I'm trying by His strength to please Him. Being full of the Spirit's not living up in some rarefied atmosphere with the angels and the saints. It's people that are vessels full of the Holy Ghost day in, day out, trying to please God. That's what it means to be full of the Spirit. You see, these requirements you can fill. You don't say, well, I'll never be Acts chapter 6 verse 3. That's not true. Amen. 
Being full of the Spirit is choosing to walk with God each day by the power of the Holy Ghost. Clay vessels filled with the power of God, full of the Spirit of God. If you're living for God, you're full of the Spirit. Does that mean that you don't need to be refreshed? Absolutely not. We need to go back to the well again and again and again. We need to let the Word of God and the Spirit of God search our hearts again and again and again. We need to let the preached Word and the studied Word absorb into us that we would continue to be changed. But if Jesus comes back today, you've got to be ready to meet him today. Does that mean I don't need to change tomorrow? That means that right now I can be ready to meet the Lord. Twelve months from now, I'm hoping I've grown some. I'm hoping I've matured. I'm hoping I'm closer to God. I'm hoping my understanding's improved. I'm hoping he's continued to change me. But I'm not waiting for 12 months to be ready for the rapture. That's a dangerous way to live. We need to be ready right now. And having wisdom doesn't mean we all have to sit around and be like Solomon. Having wisdom means knowing what to do and how to do it. We get this from where? The Word of God. Word of God teaches us to walk right, live right, talk right, do right. That's why it must be central to what we do and who we are. That's why we emphasize it so much in this church. That's why we're looking for ways to get more of it into us. Because that's where wisdom comes from. That's where understanding comes from. It's not being a guru sitting up on a mountain, having people climb up and ask for your wisdom to impart to them. It's about, God, what does your word say? Order my steps in your word. He has shown the O man what is good. If we've been shown, we need to respond. We need to have wisdom that comes from the word of God. Amen. When the seven young men were chosen... They may have had knowledge of God from the Old Testament, but you have to remember this church was brand new. This church was brand new. I mean, New Testament wasn't even written yet when this was going on. They hadn't been to Bible school. They didn't have degrees in theology. They were freshly born again people that were doing what they could with what they had. And if you're willing to do what you can with what you've got, God will use you to make a difference. He will anoint you. Does that mean you should stop growing? No, he's going to continue because if you'll take what you've got and do it with all your heart, he's going to give you more. If you say, God, I want to serve, he said, all right, let's start with the basics. Let's take one step. We begin to serve God with what we've got, with everything that we have. And he'll lead us. And these young men weren't elders. They weren't scholars. They weren't theologians. They were new converts, really. Young Christians who said... We're willing to serve. And one of them impacted the Apostle Paul. Another one preached a revival that turned an entire city to God. The other five, who knows what their stories are. But you read those passages and we make the mistakes of thinking spiritual superheroes. No, no, no. Ordinary people. Ordinary people filled with the Spirit of God saying, God, I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to contribute to the kingdom. I want you to stand with me if you would this morning, please. Oh, hallelujah. You can make a difference. You can make a difference. You have no idea what your situation right now is in the hands of God. There's so many people I could draw from from the Scriptures. I could talk about Joseph. You know, we have the privilege of reading his life looking back, but I promise you, when he was in the prison in Egypt, he wasn't seeing the hand of God. He wasn't thinking, man, this is exactly what I want to do all my life. You know, I'm right in the will of God. I feel such an anointing. He was in prison. 
But you know what he did? He maintained his integrity. And there came a point when God said, now we'll see where this puzzle piece fits. Took that smelly man out of the prison, gave him a bath and a shave and a haircut and some new clothes, made him the second most important man in the known world. And Joseph, in hindsight, could look back and say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He didn't have that understanding when he was in prison. (laughs) He was thinking, God, what is going on? Why? Why am I here? Why did my brothers sell me? Why? But all the way through, he said, I'm going to walk with God. He did what he could with what he had. Amen. Esther. You know the story of Esther. Just a young lady picked in a beauty pageant, finds herself in an awkward position where her people are under threat, and she's, she knows the risk of being willing to be involved. And her uncle says those now very famous words to him, it's possible you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And she was willing to do what she could with what she had. Saved herself, saved her uncle, saved the nation of Israel. Young David, the shepherd boy, sent to see his brothers with bread and cheese, finds himself looking at a battle. One army's terrified and hiding on one side of the valley and this big ugly giant comes out and challenges them and curses their God. And he says, I'm willing. Steps into a situation that really... In the natural understanding, he had no place being in, and God used him. Jesus ministering to the multitudes, a little boy comes along. His mom's packed him a fish sandwich. He's gone to hear this man speak. And the Lord says to his disciples, it's time to feed them all. And they think, how in the world is that possible? When he says, what have you got? And this kid produces some bread and fish. It's not kept in an esky. It's not even refrigerated. I don't even want to know what condition that was in after being in that boy's bag all day. But he said, I've got this. And Jesus took it, blessed it, and broke it. Do what you can with what you have. You can make a difference. The devil is a liar. The devil wants you to think that you can't make a difference. You just have to leave that difference to God. What it is, what it will be, that's up to him. Stephen didn't find out till eternity the impact, the long-term impact that his ministry had. But he made a difference. I wonder if we would lift our hands this morning to the Lord and just present ourselves to him.